Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. This is Tommy Yanolis, one of the founders of Ops Analytica. I want to thank you for checking out the Order Up podcast. If you're looking to run better, safer, and more profitable restaurants, I highly encourage you to start managing by checklists and using the Ops Analytica Inspector to help you hold your managers more accountable and to get that increased visibility into your daily operations. Check us out online at opsanalytica.com or just search Restaurant Checklist app. Hey, welcome to this episode of the Order Up Show. Um, tonight, today I'm going to be your host. It's uh, Tommy Yanulis, and I am super excited to welcome my guest, uh, Tom Moxie, to the program today. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hello, Tommy. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> As I always say, I'm living the dream. Each day gets better and better. And one of those days, it's going to be true. So, but, uh, so Tom's our guest. Tom is a restaurant professional. He's been doing this for pretty much his all entire professional life. He has been everything from an entrepreneur opening his own places. He helped grow the uh, rock bottom brand, uh, coming back there in 1990 before rock bottom even existed and leaving there as CEO in 1998 with a ton of breweries open and also a lot of old Chicago's as well. Um, We've worked together at Charlie Brown's, where he was the CEO of that company. And, you know, he's just constantly working in the restaurants, making things happen. And, Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And, you're uh, welcome. Oh, yeah, sweet. So, uh, all full disclosure, Tom likes my wife a lot more than she likes me. And that's <laughs> what happens when you marry up. So, whatever you're going to do. <laughs> So, Tom, the, for, the, for, the format of the podcast is really simple. I ask the same five questions to all of the guys on the show. That way, uh, you know, as you pick up and you listen to these interviews, you always kind of hear the same, uh, the same questions being asked, and it's real nice continuity. So we'll just get kicked off here on the first question, which is explain what you do today, and then take us through your career progression from sort of your first job in the industry on through you don't have to hit every job but you know hit the big highlight ones and also please tell me what ages and years those were because i think people like to hear that cool um today i'm call myself a restaurant practitioner um, to distinguish from being a consultant um and that is that rather than tell people how to fix things or how to make things better i actually get in and, and work with them or for them to fix it. So um, I enjoy running, fixing restaurants, working the day-to-day operations, uh, helping the staff get through shifts, and beginning to identify issues that need to be addressed beyond just getting from shift to shift, uh, customer service, training, product development, uh, branding, menu direction, Everything about what it takes to make a one one restaurant significantly more profitable and busier. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Um, I did the same thing for another group previously. It's this, the part of the business I enjoy. I have really no interest in uh, going back to the executive role. Um, I did that, enjoyed it, um, but it, my, this phase of my life. Um, I have the luxury of getting to do the fun part, which to me is working inside the four walls and actually running restaurants. So um, I started in 1970 at a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado called the Cork and Cleaver. It was the beginning of the chain restaurants at that point in time. There were basically not many dinner house restaurants. It was a steak and salad bar place. Um, Worked with them while I was going to college, bookkeeper, waiter, bartender, eventually ended up the manager was going to school. So I ended up not only just being an hourly employee, but wrote the schedules, um, picked up a lot of responsibility, graduated from college with a degree in real estate finance and determined that I didn't really, the notion of driving around towns trying to sell houses to people was just not what I was interested in. I like the transaction-oriented biz of the restaurant business. It happens quick. Um, interviewed with a guy, I 
sent him a letter. I saw him applying for a liquor license and said, sent him a letter saying, I'd like to get in your management program, which was a, a, a education for me right off the bat. I should have asked him if he had one. Um, but he said, sure. Um, and he was going to open up a, a restaurant in downtown Boulder in an old warehouse building. And um, I didn't really want to continue to be a waiter or server. And I said, you know, how about if I help you with the construction? And so I, he said, sure, you got any friends that can help you? <laughs> so five of us started working for this guy, Frank Day, at a building called the Walrus. And we physically, over the winter, built this restaurant up, put the floors in, put down the flooring, built some of the walls, put the decor up, built the walk-ins, put the kitchen together. We didn't do any plumbing or electric work. But a couple of the guys that we brought with us were actually finished carpenters, so they built the bar. And I mean, but we physically built the building. Um, towards the end of that, it took us four months to do it, five months. Um, when we got ready to open, um, the manager of the restaurant was a kitchen manager from one of Frank's other's restaurants, and so he was responsible for the back of the house. Uh, I hired and trained everybody that. Uh, was in the front of the house. So at 23, I became the front of the house manager opening a restaurant in downtown Boulder that opened. It was a similar concept to what a thing called Hula Hands, mm. uh, TGI Fridays, that kind of a place. Big salad bar, cool menu. Um, we opened with lines out the door. The manager of the restaurant freaked out, left. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, at twenty at twenty three, I became not only the front of the house manager, I became the manager, and in that concept, that meant I was the chef. Um, so I had, I moved into the kitchen and for a year, ran the restaurant from the kitchen. So I had to learn to cut meat, order food, uh, working the line, actually producing food and cooking, lunch and dinner for a year. Uh, it was the greatest education I ever had. Um, the other line cooks with me were, fortunately, were three women who were caught on blue trained. Nice. Um, yeah, it was really a great learning ex- exercise. And so um, I went back, I was recruited back to the Cork and Cleaver as they were starting to grow. Um, left the Walrus in 74. Um, that restaurant is now 45 years old. Um, the floor that we put in is still there. The walls are still up. Uh, it's interesting enough, the first two work experiences I had, the cork is still open as the cork and cleaver, and the walrus is still open as the walrus. So um, that foundation of customer service and focus on those things, those fundamentals were embedded and learned from me from the very get-go. Um, I went back to work with the cork and cleaver. My wife and I, as Tommy said, he married up. I married way up. Um, <laughs> we packed up and moved to Jacksonville, Florida to run a cork and cleaver there. Um, was there for two and a half years as a manager of the restaurant. As they began to grow, they asked me to become, promoted me to a regional manager to handle the restaurants they were building in the southeast, which was Tallahassee, Mobile, Huntsville, we built three restaurants in Orlando, Savannah, Charleston. Uh, when I went back to work with the Cork and Cleaver, I think there were 10 or 11 restaurants. Over the period of 75 through 85, um, the company grew to, actually till 83, the company grew to 80 restaurants. Um, I became the regional manager, then a director of operations for a third of the company. Um, so I went from one restaurant to multi-restaurants of four or five to 25, um, was asked by one of the companies that bought us, we were owned by the people that own Charthouse restaurants. Uh, so Cork and Cleaver and and Charthouse were similar concepts. We merged together. We, in another division of our company, we owned 600 Burger Kings. Um, the company bought Godfather's Pizza. We own Luther's Barbecue, and during this process, 
one of the projects I was given was asked to develop a new concept for the company that was more like was a bar, Jake's in Portland. Um, so while I was doing my regular operations job, built a menu, developed a menu, did the, worked with the architect design people, reconfigured a restaurant and opened it um, successfully in North Carolina. We were one of the first people in there with the liquor by the drink, so it was a new phenomenon to have big bars, and it was very successful. Did that. Um, was asked to even go do R&D work for the big company. Don Smith wanted a boulangerie Panera type concept, so worked on that for a year with him. Um, the company was eventually sold to Pillsbury. They wanted Burger Kings back. At that point in time, I said, I don't want to work for steak and ale. Um, so it tells a lot about me. <laughs> I, work with the I work with the people that I enjoy. Um, I was 35, three kids, <laughs> full of myself. Um, got asked by, I went to, came back to Colorado and was at my sister-in-law's wedding. And the CEO of Village Inn, was at the wedding, was friends of my wife's family. We were talking during the wedding, and he said, why don't you come in Monday and come over and meet me? You don't have a job. So I went in Denver, went over and met him, and he offered me a job as a vice president of operations um, in a new a division of franchisee restaurants they had to take back by SEC ruling. So Diane and I moved from Jacksonville, Florida, to or actually from Atlanta, where we had moved to with the court to Des Moines, Iowa, and I took over the responsibility for 20 village and restaurants that were very successful, um, realized that they hadn't raised prices in a few years, and developed a strategy of introducing the notion of skillets, which are ubiquitous now, but they were new to the breakfast world. Um, and it was a, we were very successful, allowed us to enter, put a, something on the menu that wasn't an omelet, wasn't eggs over easy, priced at a different price point, which allowed us to have stretch and space in our menu. So over time, the, the omelets and the, everything else could come up to what was current pricing, but we couldn't have gotten there that quickly on our own. Turned the net profits of the division from 600000 to $5 million in two years. Um, CEO thought I was walking on water, promoted me to be the VP of the whole operations of the company. So at that point in time, I had 90 village and restaurants, three VPs reporting to me, the marketing department. Um, did that for a couple more years. Um, the opportunity to leave and go do something on my own came up, so I left. I really didn't... Um, I didn't really enjoy the um, politics of the company, is the best way to put it. So uh, Frank Day contacted me and said, I've got this new concept, but I'm going to build a brew pub. So I went back to work with Frank, helped him open the first brew pub at the Walnut Brewery in Boulder, started working on other projects of his. We opened the Rock Bottom, Denver, Rock Bottom Brewery in Denver. Um, by then, we were becoming national. People were thought this brewery thing was cool. Um, we opened a couple more old Chicago's. We opened a brewery in Minneapolis, Rock Bottom Denver and Rock Bottom Minneapolis. Both were doing, in the cities we were in, most volume of any of the restaurants that were around there. Um, we ran into some bankers who wanted to take us public. So we put together the documents, <laughs> which was interesting the sophistication that we lacked um, and over a year's period of time put together the offering memorandums wrote all the documents learned how to speak um, started the roadshow the first tranche we raised 17 million dollars for the company um, that was the the deal closed in June. We were opening restaurants through the spring and summer, summer and fall. And Thanksgiving, unbeknownst to us, Money Magazine, which is the magazine for the Wall Street Journal, 
published, put on the front page of their magazine the first week of December, rock bottom is the stock of the year, the next year. <laughs> so, so immediately, you know, the chairman during that time had decided he didn't want to be the CEO. So we were opening restaurants, putting together a team to build literally from four rest, from two rest, three restaurants to growth expectations of one restaurant every quarter going forward and two old Chicago's every quarter. So we put together the team to do that, the training teams to follow up, the organizational structure, the, infra, the IT, I mean, every single support function. Um, when we went public, we literally did not have an office that I, I didn't even have a desk. Um, <laughs> so um, by the time we got to Thanksgiving and the bankers are calling going, you've got to do another offering right now. So between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we decided, well, we're going to was be serious about this if we are, because we had to get the board's approval. The day after Christmas, I flew to the bankers in San Francisco. We started the team, the process to doing offering memorandum the second time. And at that one, we raised $26 million, or $36 million, because we raised over $50 million. And at that point, we, that deal was closed and funded. Uh, the weekend we opened the Chop House, which was another another concept we developed in the breweries uh, right next to Coors Field. So we continued to open the old Chicago's, continued to open Rock Bottoms, and then we added a steakhouse with a brewery in it just to make things more interesting. Um, I continued to run those divisions with franchising Old Chicago as an additional caveat to the group. I left in 1998. Um, Struck out on my own to do an independent entrepreneur concept that was prepared foods. It was um, think of the prepared foods part of the Whole Foods, high quality shops that I'd seen in New York and San Francisco in neighborhoods where you could stop in and pick up dinner. Um, they were well received. Um, I just picked the wrong business partners to begin with, and they weren't used to variable performance. Food cost that went, a, you know, took a little while to get under control. So they decided they didn't want to fund it anymore, and we closed them down. Um, at that time, uh, the guy who was now presently the governor of Colorado was a friend of mine, and I was being recruited to run big companies: um, Morton's, Lone Star, uh, Longhorn, other steakhouse companies, and I wasn't sure I wanted to go do that. And so uh, John Hickenlooper and I were talking about it, and I said, really, I'd like to find out if I want to run a restaurant first. So I ran his Wincoop Brewing Company for a year, discovered that I actually did really enjoy that part of the business a lot. I uh, was approached by John Elway and his partner and asked if I could develop a steakhouse restaurant for them. So for a year, I worked on the design menu, construction supervision, hiring, detailing out, everything down to the china, the silverware, uniforms, training materials, look and feel of the menu, look and feel of the design of the restaurant, uh, opened the restaurant for John. Um, first year, six and a half, seven million dollars, and four years after, my, when I left in the four, after four years, it was on a $12 million run rate. Um, during that, we licensed the concept to the Ritz-Carlton Group to put in a hotel in downtown Denver. So we had to get all the documents for that done um, and train them on how to run an Elways. Um, and when I left Elways, the Rock Bottom guys needed to be recapitalized, so they asked me to come back and help them straighten out the Rock Bottom side because it had gotten a little off focus. The, and three years of work with them while they were trying to raise capital. I was working on the operations of the business, um, raised um, liquor sales back to what it had been, the beverage part of the business, which is fundamental in their, in their financial model, um, lowered the food costs to what it needed to be, lowered labor to what it needed to be, um, and then because I'd raised capital for Frank before, 
got sucked into helping them raise capital again. <laughs> Ended up in New York wandering around selling the company, ran into some other bankers while we were doing it. Um, our company, Rock Bottom, was sold, um, and the bankers I ran into contacted me afterwards and said we'd be interested in uh, helping us. We're going to buy these restaurants out of bankruptcy, a chain in New Jersey, and would you be interested in commuting to New Jersey to run them for us for three years while we put it back Get it right, right. You know, get it righted. Get it operating in a normal fashion. So for three years, I commuted to New Jersey. Had an apartment in Hackensack. Um, it was a great. It was fun. Had a good time. At the end of the three years, they asked me if I wanted to do it more, and I went, I think not. Um, <laughs> David Query had one restaurant in Denver that they had hired the wrong guys to run it to begin with, and um, he was a little out of his comfort zone in turning around a restaurant because David had been very successful in Boulder and Denver opening up smaller restaurants um, and the one that he just his newest one and he was about to open another one were not performing well they had issues beyond just financial so I said I'll take it over and run it for you while you find somebody to run it so after almost 20 months I've gotten it back on track and another group contacted me when I said, okay, I'm going to go do that again somewhere else. So that's my career. Nice. That's yeah. that's pretty amazing. It's so I didn't realize that. Well, first of all, you've been been a professional in the business longer than I've been alive, which makes me feel young and good. But you should feel young because you are. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the other thing, I so I didn't realize that you you opened the walrus for Frank. So you had worked for Frank in the seventies and then went back in the nineties and then back in the two thousands. Exactly. Wow. Three times. That's pretty yeah. amazing. Made wow. Multi-million. Yeah. So, and having fun at it, you know, and I get, I mean, truly the most interesting thing to me is that at my age, um, the staff that I work with, a fair number of them are less than a third of my age. And they're not, there's no communication issues. They're not turned off by it. We have, I mean, it's, they, they, they have fun. Um, they respect me. Uh, they, they know that, that I'm into it. I've got their back. So uh, I enjoy, I enjoy that part of the business the most and talking to customers. So that's awesome. That is awesome. And it's also cool too, that like you did the whole gamut, like you were at the top on the, the hottest stuff you know, and yet you you came back to your roots, if you will, back to the management side, just a single unit operation. I'm going to run this and fix it because that's like such a, that's a very unique thing in our industry. And I think it's a very unique thing that you're doing as well, but it's super unique about the restaurant business is that if you start in the restaurants, you could always go back to the restaurants. You know, you don't have to be in the C-suite. Nope. It, um, I've always wondered over the years, I would interview people and they're like, well, I'd like to be a manager and then I'd like to be a regional manager and then I'd like to grow to be the president of the company. And I've always thought to myself, careful for what you wish because if you like the restaurants, the interaction with the customers and the transactions and getting it done and running the perfect shift is a fun. The farther you get away from that, the less fun it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, you learn a lot. I mean, taking the company public, I learned a ton. You know, quite frankly, if I'd have known what traders did, I might have moved to New York or Chicago and worked on one of the trading boards. The, 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 the transaction is addictive. Um, but I'm going, the being in the restaurant business, if you really enjoy the restaurant business, not working in them and not having interaction with the staff and the public is if you miss that, and it's it's awkward to get those juices, that that reward, that feeling, if you're not in the restaurants. For sure, for sure. Uh, so I'm going to move on to question number two. Uh, what is yeah. the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Well, the the Ale House um, is owned by a company called Breckenridge Windcoop, um, and they own a total of seven restaurants. They just recently sold the brand Breckenridge Brewery, 
to Anheuser-Busch, um, but they own these restaurants. And the alehouse concept is interesting in that it's not a brewery, but we sell we have 43 beers on tap, and it's a beer-centric concept. And the, the millennials are really the target audience up through the Xers, maybe into the Ys. But the, the notion of people sampling beers and and experiencing different profiles of beers and different is an entertainment factor that is interesting to watch, hard to monetize, hard to make, hard to figure out how to make money on it. Um, and then as you get into that, one of the key ingredients is you need to really be good at training and developing the beer knowledge of your staff, not just of the ones you have on tap, but how beer is made, what the flavor profiles. If somebody tells you they like a particular style of beer, you they have to be good enough to be able to walk people through the menu and here, taste this and taste that so that that need is met um, so that it's, it's, you know, in the 60s, somebody decided that uh, Coors was their brand. They never varied from it. Today, halfway through a drink of beer, people, the consumers, you can watch them. They'll mix two beers together just to see what it tastes like, which was, you know, heresy in the old days. <laughs> so I'm going, um, and there's a lot more beer interest. You know, the, when we took Rock Bottom Public, craft beer was less than 1% of the beer sales in the, world, in the United States. Today, craft beer is like 17% of the sales. Um, and so being able to figure out, I mean, there's a lot, that's the biggest project of how do you deliver on that position and be the best at market. Um, it's easy to get the beers. It's easy to build a building. It's not so easy to train the staff and have them be passionate about it um, because there's a lot to know. Sure. Yeah, I haven't been to this restaurant yet, but my business partner has. There's one in St. Louis where the taps are actually at the table and they've got some sort of monitoring system, you know, where they sure. can monitor the flow. That would be very interesting to see, too. Obviously, you can't have 43 taps, but because, like, when we brew beer, because we brew beer, we always are mixing them together because it's just like it's just like single malt scotch versus blended scotch. I mean, the single malt people will want to punch me in the face for this, but, like, you know, Dewar's is a pretty good damn glass of scotch, you know, because they, like, take all the edges off and, and, the, and it mixes together nicely, and it's kind of the same thing with uh, right. yeah, with so the, going the beers. You know, by the way, I've run one of the, I've had those tapping systems in restaurants. Um, they're cool. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the dilemma, I mean, if people are, the, 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 the Y generation has an attention span that's measured in nanoseconds. Um, <laughs> and you're going, okay, how, if you're going to meet that demand and keep their interest, well, you got to be nimble and on your feet and, and keep abreast of the market and have the, the brewers bringing you new stuff that's innovative. Um, and by the way, uh, the best brewers in the, in the world, the best brewers in the world work for companies like Bud, Coors, Miller, Stella, Heineken. Those are, the, those are the best beers. They're not the most interesting, but those are the best beers. Sure. It's hard to do. It's hard to make something that is alive, which beer is. Um, and keep it that very consistent from one taste from one bottle to the next bottle to the next bottle, um, because there's so many things that impact it. But anyway, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um. Cool. So here, moving on to the next question: What is the one thing in the industry or your business that is keeping you up at night? Um. The notion in today's dialogue, the, the topic of raising radically quickly the pay of the staff um, is alarming. Um, the impact of that for the staff is, I mean, there's a, 
I don't even know how many hundred, hundreds of thousands of people work in the restaurant industry, but telling them that they're going to go from minimum wage job of somewhere between five and eight dollars an hour to fifteen dollars an hour relatively quickly, they're going, "You bet, babe, that's great." Well, you're going, "All right." Um, I think there's a conception in the marketplace that restaurants have that kind of um, margin to absorb that. Um, 30%, probably 20% of the cost structure of the restaurant industry is hourly employees, maybe 23, 24%. So if you raise that number um, by 40%, so the cost structure is going to have to be elastic enough to get the percentages just to cover the margin impact of raising your fixed cost of labor by 30% over a four-year period. I, I, I wonder whether the people that are in the marketplace are going to appreciate that a McDonald's hamburger is going to go from 279 or 379 to 479 a bottle of beer is going to go from X to Y because uh, there's nothing, there's no mar- there's no room in the in the economic model to absorb the impact on hourly wages, and then the, what the happens to those wages is they ripple through the trash pickup people. Everybody, all of the people in that stratosphere are going to see their wages go up, which means that the cost to get the trash picked up, the laundries everything that the operating cost is going to go up. And the consumer is going to be paying, you know, a dollar more for a head of lettuce, (laughs) a dollar more per pound for for a hamburger. Um, Those things are interesting to watch. And coincidentally, when you think about the impact of the the people that are in favor of it, um, that $15 an hour number, by the way, puts all of those people presently who make less than that above poverty. So suddenly they actually have to file and probably will not get their whole withholdings back of income tax. That's one byproduct. It moves them out of welfare, food stamps, etc. cetera. Um, so there's going to be a whole bunch of people who thought they were getting a big raise by getting this done, who are going to actually get hurt by it. Um, and I'm going, the general pop, the people that are going to really suffer the most are the people above that who are working folks who like to go out every once in a while and have dinner. You know, even if it's go to McDonald's or go to wherever, that's going to be a interesting absorption in rapid inflation. Um, because there's going to be no companies that are going to have to do it or they'll go broke. And uh, I'm very worried that the notion of giving everybody a living wage is the the moniker of it. I'm going, okay, (laughs) be careful for doing that because all of you that give it to them had better be prepared for what is a big part of the GDP of the country really becoming, having years of struggle to figure out how to be profitable again. Um, There will be big organizations that go broke with this deal. And and it keeps me awake because I don't, I mean, people don't trust me. I'm the big corporate monger and I'm the profit guy and et cetera. I'm going, I am. The fact of the matter is, the servers who are going to go from five ninety-eight an hour to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, presently, the five ninety-eight pays their taxes on the cash they make as in tips. <laughs> so, why are we worried about them? Um, it's an interesting, I, and I'm, I don't have an answer. It just worries me that everybody's onto it and they think it's a great idea. And I'm going, I don't think anybody's thought this through. And I can tell you that the most interesting part of that whole discussion is that the political parties, both the Democrats and Republicans, are mute on the subject um, because both of them see um, a huge tax increase for the government. 
without raising taxes. Sure. All of that, all that seven dollars an hour is straight income that they'll be able to tax, and then the people that get the money won't be able to get it back. Because presently, if you make less than twenty-five thousand dollars a year, all your withholdings go back automatically. Not so much anymore. So that worries me. That's what keeps me awake. Well, and I would tag on that too. Like two years ago, we went to the NRA show, and right in the front of one of the the halls, they have a robot. And it can flip fries. And it was there doing its thing. And two years ago, that robot was twice the size it was last year. So they've already shrunk that thing in half. You know what I mean? And I, I yep. just look at it from, and I, people always say this, like the restaurant industry is where a lot of people get their start. I, at 14, was dropped off at the Columbia Mall in Maryland to go make cheesesteaks, you know, on a worker's permit. And so it's like, you're not going to hire, like people will say this all the time, I'm not going to hire a high school kid to come work at my restaurant for 15 bucks an hour if I can find a 25-year-old because that high school kid's only going to be there for the summer. So you're going to cut out that low-end portion of the job scale. And number two, once restaurants like start to figure out how we can automate more and more stuff or get better machinery or whatever, once you install that, even if it costs you 100 k that 100 k is less than... It's three years that it paid back on having an employee do that. You know what I mean? And so then at that point, it never costs you another penny again, other than maintenance and electricity. And it never calls in sick. It just runs. It's there. Does it give you a lift? Doesn't have to switch shifts. You know, once we start pulling people out of the restaurant industry, they're never going to come back in. Like, no, because people are headaches. Writing a schedule for a rock bottom is a mind-blowing headache that if you didn't (laughs) have to have, you wouldn't do, you know? And so I, I do sense too, and this is my theory, and I want to hear your opinion on it. I sense that if this all goes through the whole nation's at 15, that there'll be a large portion of like, you'll either be in fast, like a uh, quick serve. And if you want a waiter, you're going to have to go to like uh, Capitol Grill, fine dining. You're not going to have waiters. You'll have food runners. You'll have somebody that'll help you work the tablet when you can't figure it out on the table. But they, um, everybody, the romance of the restaurant business is the interaction between the staff and the customers, um, and, and that's that, that what's, that's what makes the business. That's what keeps it young. I mean, um, Taylor worked for me as a hostess and was scared to death mm-hmm. at greeting people in the front door. I'm going. This is a girl who won state champion soccer games, qualified to get to graduate school at, at one of the best business schools in the country and was petrified talking to customers and comes from a father who couldn't shut up. And I'm going, um, you know, that's where, that's where kids learn how to do business. I mean, if you're a server in a restaurant, you manage your cash, you manage your time, you have to learn to talk, you have to learn to speak to people about, teach them about this, interact with customers, have responsibility checklists. It's a wonderful, and for managers to be the manager of a restaurant when you're 23, 24 years old, having all accountability for business operations, from manufacturing to employment, to HR, to banking, to all those things, is a great place to learn how to make, how to work in the business world. Um, and I fear it's going to change. Um, if you want to see the way it will work, hang out in Oregon <laughs> and see the kind of restaurants that have, have survived over the years. And uh, they're more like... Um, noodles more like chipotle um than any place where you order food from a server and drinks are brought you want something you go get it and it's uh, it'll be a very different service environment you know so yeah it'll be interesting and by the way when you go to cap grill if you thought it was expensive now It'll be a hundred dollars. I mean, it's probably a hundred dollars a person today, realistically, with drinks and everything. It's going to go to one fifty. It's exactly where it'll go. So it is. It's at ninety six dollars now, and it'll go way up into the mid one hundreds for sure. So that means the only people who will ever have service from a, a server are going to be just the rich people, which and the people people spending other people's money, business people. Yeah, true. But anyway, yeah, that's what keeps me up. Cool. 
Uh, next question. What is the one thing that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it, it hasn't like really adopted? I don't think that working in a restaurant is as well thought of today as it was 40 years ago. Um, it's it, to get to be a server in a restaurant was a cool job 40 years ago. Get to be a bartender was really a cool job 40 years ago. And today, um, I don't think the restaurant industry um, is as cool, and I don't think it's because we don't we don't market the industry well. Um, you know, it is a bit of you know cleaning up after people, and it's always greasy, and it you know it's always dirty, and you know you got to clean dishes, and you get your hands wet, and your clothes get screwed up. But there's so much reward from learning how to do all of this stuff and manage your life and interact with customers and um, I don't think we, I thought the industry would be better at selling itself as a, not an immediate job, but as a educational platform for learning and growing. Um, high school kids today wouldn't even think about taking a restaurant job unless their parents made them. Um, yeah, that I mean, and it's, there's so many benefits to learning, working in the business at such a young age. And we we are not our industry is horrible at selling it. Um, you know it's interesting. McDonald's did not have product in their commercials until 1964 or five. All of their commercials were focused on reinforcing their service product standards. You know we'll do it your way. Grab a bucket and mop. Clean it bottom to top had nothing to do with a picture of a quarter pounder or a Big Mac. It had to do with reinforcing the brand as an employer of quality, smiling, scrubbed people. Um, the industry was much better in the 60s and 70s of merchandising itself as a place where you could learn about business. Um, and today, um, it's I guess kids would rather sit and write code. <laughs> Since I own an IT shop now, I'll, you know, whatever. I'm not going to comment well, no, on that I get it, but it's only because it's sexy. I'm going, the fact of the matter is uh, you're alone. You don't have anybody to talk to. Um, I'm going, there is, I mean, I, you're not alone. There's, I know that there's groups of people that sit. I mean, but it's, yeah. um, it, we, we are not as competitive as we could be because we don't merchandise the industry. Sure. And I, I will say that some of the richest people I know are rich because they worked in fast food because they started at, they started at Yum and went through all of those iterations with KFC and Taco Bell and, you know, and they just cash out on stock and like, but they were running fast food restaurants. And I, I met know people who started as a burger flipper and like retired with 16 McDonald's. So, you know, like, and that's yeah. just in the fast food portion of things. But the restaurant industry is still an industry today where you don't need a college degree to make well over 100K a year. You know, it's a, it's a, and if you, want to, if you want to figure out if we don't, I mean, it's, yeah, there's just, it, it's just, it's a shame that it's not as well thought of. You know, my children got out of the business as quick as they could. Sure. Um, and, I, and I can't imagine that my grandchildren will ever get in it. <laughs> What's interesting and, about... And going, oh, sorry. They're their grandfathers in the Hall of Fame in the state of Colorado Restaurant Association. I'm going, um, I've had a, not only a, a great career, I've made innumerable amounts of friends and impacted other people's lives. Been a great teacher, mentor, growth. I mean, all of this stuff it's been so rewarding. I'm going, why is it that people think so poorly of the business? Um, you know, it's, but anyway, it's, it's something, it's interesting. Yeah. Sure. Well, my grandfathers were both in the restaurant business because uh, they're Puerto Rican and Greek, so they were kind of born into it. But then my parents were both technology, straight technology. Then I went into restaurants 
and then and then I've graduated into some technology, I guess. But <laughs> okay. but but my parents were like, "Don't work in the business," like because I guess they saw how how the hours and you know how you know you have to work weekends and holidays, and so I guess they were like less enthused by it. But it was just sort of in my blood, I guess, because I I was drawn to it. Cool. So last question of the podcast is recount like a super funny or like like horrible story that happened to you in your career. Just something super interesting and funny would be cool. I think I'm gonna take the horrible part out of that question, actually. <laughs> well, back in my village in days, um, I trained in Denver. Was commuting back to Atlanta, and we moved to Iowa. And I started to meet the group. And I'd been, and this was in the middle of winter. And uh, we moved into Des Moines, Iowa, West Des Moines. We had a restaurant up in the one of the not very busy shopping centers, strip center type things in the north part of Des Moines, Iowa, in an area known as Merle Hay. And it was a cold February day, probably minus 10, 40 mile an hour wind. So it was just one of these days you're asking yourself, why am I out? And I was supposed to meet the guy who I was replacing at, at, one of the, at this restaurant up there, and then we were going to travel around some other restaurants. So I go up in my car, park in the parking lot, go inside in my nice little suit, <laughs> walk in the building, and it was a, a restaurant that was staffed appropriately for the volume they're going to have. They had a cook, a server, and a cashier. That's all they needed for the business on Tuesday morning in the middle of Iowa in the middle of winter. So we're sitting there, and I'm having a cup of coffee and talking with them and making small talk. And I look across the parking lot, and driving towards the building are two huge Continental Trailway buses. And I looked at the host, and I said, what is that? Oh, well, sometimes we get busloads that come off the highway, and they just pop in unannounced. I'm looking at her, a host, one server, and a cook, and me, and I'm thinking, there is no way we're going to be able to fulfill the needs of 80 people instantly. So I went, I told the cook, I said, go back in the back and hit the breaker for the the sign, and then light. (laughs) Turn off the electricity. And I told the host, when the buses start to pull up, Go out and tell them that the power's gone out because it's cold, and they're going to have to go over to Perkins across the street. <laughs> and they're going, you can't do that. And I'm going, yes, I can, and I am. So later on that day, I get a call from the, my friend who was the chairman of the board. That, was kind of, that kind of information percolates up real quickly. <laughs> and he says, tell me, what did you do? And I said, well, I decided that rather than piss off two busloads of people who I would eventually had to buy everything for because we would have never been able to get them food ever. But we'd have been lucky to get them coffee. Uh, there wasn't anybody to call to bring in. I mean, it was, oh, God, 30 frozen Iowa weather. I said it was cheaper for me to screw up Perkins' reputation than to buy two busloads worth of food. So <laughs> as soon as the, he says, so what did you do? I said, well, as soon as they went to Perkins, I turned the power back on and we just did our normal Tuesday morning business. And so <laughs> that's an indication of how um, I've been taught over the years to make do with what you got, make sure that you take care of the customer, never let them leave ever unsatisfied. Um, and um, it's have done. I've done real well with that, both for the employees and for customers. But that was probably one of the most interesting out-of-the-box things that I've ever done. A friend of mine years later was trying to have a think session for the Rock Bottom people and the old Chicago people when they were trying to revitalize their company. And they, one of the consultants that they had in there, <laughs> he says, okay, so we need to think outside the box. Well, Frank Day, this guy that I've worked for three times now, you picked on it pretty quickly started laughing in the back of the room and everybody's going, 
what the hell is that? Why is, it, why is it the consultants? Why is that so funny? Because <laughs> a lot of the people in the, in the company, some of them still knew who I was. There are a lot of people in that group that didn't have any idea who I was. And Frank says, there's no box for Moxie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Telling him to get outside the box is easy. He's never been in one. So, um, yeah, there you go. That was the fun. There were, there were lots of stories like that. You know, lots of stories. Thinking of creative ways to invigorate staffs to have people fulfill their dreams and grow. Because a lot of them are going, you know, I want to fall off. I want to go do my own thing. I'm going to merry-go-round. Lean as far off of that horse as you can and get the brass ring. And um, I am a big believer in graduation. Um, contrary to what everybody believes, I think turnover is the best thing in the world in this organization, this type of business. Does that mean you've got people that are going somewhere in their lives? they got stuff going on. And they grow through what they can get out of the job here, and they go do something else. So, yeah. Cool. Well, Tom, thank you so much. Do you have anything you want to plug here at the end of the podcast? Just, uh, it's uh, Tom Moxie. I, it's a company called Moxie LLC, and I'm a restaurant practitioner. And um, if you need to reach out to Tommy, he can give you my contact stuff. But, I'm, you know. I'll do this for not, this is what I'm doing right now and some other projects, but um, I've been married to the, my wife and I celebrated our 51st anniversary of our first date. Nice. <laughs> it's like, you want to feel old, Tommy? How about that, huh? <laughs> so, the reason that she and I have been together so much is that I work all the time. Um, I find it interesting that people say the restaurant business is a lot of hours, and I work a lot. My son is in the Microsoft world. He's an information investor relations guy. And every quarter, he works more than I do. Um, So if you want to be successful in life, you have to work. Uh, And the reason my marriage marriage works is that I'm not home. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, well, Tom. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, these are some great stories today. And I will put in on the show notes uh, the link to your website so that people can click on it and check it out. Well, that was Order Up for this week. Thank you, Tom. And we will talk to you guys soon. Take care.